Good to be with you this morning and uh, continuing in our series and that uh, we thought last week was our last uh, week in the book of, or I'm in the study of David and his life, but I didn't feel right after the service. I didn't feel right ending the, on the life of David in the way in which we did. I felt like we focused so much on some of the negative sides of his life and how he really blew it in the appropriate response. I was like, you know what? I don't feel like that captures necessarily the whole of who David is. And so this morning, we're going to be looking at his heart of worship or his heart for worship, because I think there's a lot that we can glean from that. I think there's a lot we can emulate from David in the way that he connected with God through worship. So this morning, we're going to be looking at that, and we're going to be jumping uh, around, basically landing in the book of uh, Psalms in chapter 63. But you might not know this. Did you know that over 73 of the Psalms that are written are attributed to David as the author? He definitely would be somebody that would be known, even looking at his life as well, known as somebody having a heart for worship. I found it interesting as I was in my study this week, just reading a few different snippets from his life. One of them found in 2 Samuel 6, verse 14. It talks about when the Ark of the Covenant was being moved to the town or the area in which he lived, how he responded to that. And we put this verse on the, on the screen there. 2 Samuel 6, 14 says this, and it says, And David danced before the Lord with all his might. That's an interesting quote, or that's an interesting description of, of someone dancing. I can't think of anything in my life that I've danced to with all of my might. Can you guys picture anything? So, but this is the, the king of the nation dancing with all of his might. A lot of us, maybe with our Baptist roots, might not even be comfortable in this conversation right now. Uh, but dancing was a big deal, and he lived that out. He worshiped it. I was Thinking as it relates to dance, and maybe this is a, a sidetrack topic, but my, my wife is known uh, to, to, to boogie a little bit. And, uh, and so that, that's a, ch- a cheesy term, but funny story. One time, came home, and I normally have a pretty good pulse on any packages that might be coming to the house, any purchases uh, that have been made on eBay or Amazon, whatever. Well, one day there's a box that came, and I was like, I see her name on it. I'm like, oh, I wonder what this is. Is this like a, a, a missed address, or what is it? I open the box. She wasn't home yet. I open the box and look inside, like how, like how I snoop in her mail, and I look inside, and there's a pair of tap dancing shoes. I'm like, huh, must be a wrong address. Adrian gets home a little bit later, and I was like, honey, someone sent you tap dancing shoes. Isn't that weird? She's like, yeah, I ordered those online. I was like, what do you mean you ordered tap? I, I said, are you planning to take some lessons? Nope, just thought it'd be fun to tap dance. I was like, who does that? And so she does on occasion some demonstrations, not so much in public, although there have been those occasions. Uh, but, but anyway, it's just fun. I was thinking about that as it relates to David as really he's that guy that you want to have at the party, right? He's that, he's that guy that isn't so concerned about his reputation, isn't so concerned about what people think. What he's more concerned about is the way that God looks upon him. In fact, in that same chapter, we see after he's dancing there before the Lord, Michael, who is the daughter of Saul, not Michael, his friend, but Michael, the daughter of Saul, confronted him and actually chastises him and says, man, you're basically saying you're embarrassing yourself. You're the king. You should act like it. And that's where we get his response, which many of us are familiar with and have quoted, including the agape singers. I will 
become even more undignified than this. In other words, if you think that's crazy, wait till I really get worshiping. Wait till I I really start singing of God's praises. Because why? Because he had a heart of worship. I think we can glean from that this morning. Let me pray before we dive in. Dear Lord, we thank you so much for this text and this picture that we see a, a little snapshot into David's heart for you. Clearly somebody that had an intimate relationship with you. And as ones that are wanting to do the same, we want to learn from a man that's described as having a, a heart, a, a heart, a, a man after God's own heart. So I pray that you teach us this morning, that you'd stretch us, that we would become better worshipers. Even recognizing this morning that, that, that that's what our, our hope is as a, as a church, that we'd be people that worship you. Not just on a Sunday morning, but with our, our lives, a lifestyle of worship. Teach us, God, we ask you. In Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. If you wouldn't mind turning with me, uh, we're going to be spending most of our, our time in Psalm 63, as I mentioned. If you wouldn't mind turning over there, it's so much easier to follow along if we're looking at the same text. What I notice in this text, just even with the heading, is that true worshipers are often forged in times of trouble and despair. Again, I'll repeat that. True worshipers are often forged in times of trouble and despair. So many of the Psalms aren't necessarily happy and cheery and chipper. I was thinking about that. So often life isn't necessarily happy and cheery and chipper. Psalm 63 is definitely that case. Look at the heading of it. It says, a Psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah little background there, what was actually happening. Uh, Bill Berry just a couple weeks ago gave us a little bit of this uh, overview. But this was right after David had just been overthrown in government by his own son, Absalom. And in fear for his life, he actually fled to the wilderness. We actually see in scripture that he, he had to get out of there so quickly he went without his shoes. So here's David in the wilderness, barefoot, and here's his account of his experience there. We don't know if it was written immediately when he was there or if it's later reflecting on it. But either way, this is his response to this just miserable experience. What does it, what does it, what does it say happened? says, O God, and this is how he responds out there in the wilderness. He says, O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul, th- my soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. As in a dry and weary land where there is no water, so I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. See, worship starts with a hunger for God. Let's look at his, his first couple of words there. Oh God, you are my God. In other words, I don't have a backup plan. I've put all my chips in you. He's everything to David. We don't seem to really worship until we are desperate for God. And here David is desperate for God. Can you imagine being in that place where even his family has betrayed and abandoned him? He's at that point where you're wondering, is there anyone that's still on my side. Is there anyone? What is he, what is he, how does he respond? He, he comes to a crossroad. Maybe you've been in the same crossroads where you've sat maybe in that same chair and just wondered, am I all alone in this? Am I all alone? Am I completely abandoned? Maybe you've been in that place as well. 
In that crossroads, you really have two options. You can either shake your fist at God in anger and say, God, why are you doing this? And and choosing to push him away or the appropriate response, as we see in David's life, instead of pushing him away, he chooses instead to pursue him. What does it say there? You're my God, earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. This idea of an intentional pursuit. This idea that, that it wasn't lackadaisical, like, yeah, man, my relationship with God, like, we've got a good thing. It's like, no, I'm hungry for you. I'm pursuing you. And I love the description that he uses. He describes it as somebody that's like just so desperate for something to drink. I don't know if you've ever been in that place in your life. Maybe not so much a, just a, a dry mouth, but a, a point where you're just like, I have to get something to drink. My, my kids, it takes like three seconds without water where they're, they're like, I, I need something to drink so bad. I'm going to die here. They're, they're a little dramatic. But, but, but me grow, growing up, I remember one time in particular, one of the things I enjoyed doing in high school is uh, me and my friends, we'd go and play basketball and we'd play at this outdoor court in Chicago in the middle of summer. August is like 95 with 99% humidity and like that instant sweat weather. And I remember being out and we'd start playing, we'd start playing basketball at like 9, 10 a.m. and still be playing at like seven o'clock at night. This one particular court we had didn't have a drinking fountain. I remember days where I'm just like, I'm going to die. Like, I, I'm not going to survive another step here. I was thinking about that as I pictured here with David, probably speaking from experience in that very moment as he pens these words. It's like, I'm desperate, you, desperate for you, as, as is somebody that's in a dry and thirsty land. Here he is in the wilderness speaking from experience. I'm far from that same desire for, for God, but I want it. I want that. I want that desire. I want that hunger for him. I want that, that, that need for him. I was thinking about it this week in preparation for this morning, and I was wondering if we as a church, when I say church, I mean big C church, globally, have traded craving for God with craving for the good things that he provides. Instead of, instead of necessarily wanting him, we want the things that he, we want him to solve our circumstances. We want him to, to make us, allow us to have a good life. I wonder if that craving has been redirected. It's like a, I was reading this week, it's like a, a couple who had their baby dedicated at a church. And after the service, they had a party to celebrate the event. Aunts and uncles began arriving along with grandparents, nieces, nephews, and friends. Everybody began talking and eating Finally, someone spoke up and asked, where's the baby? The parents had taken the child to the bedroom and placed in the crib for a nap. Everyone was so busy enjoying one another that they had forgotten why they were there. Thinking about that, couldn't that potentially be the church gotten in such routines and habits that you're like, you know, I really enjoy coming together. It's nice to see this person. Like, I, I really like that one song that Chad does or, or, or uh, whatever it is for you. And we've started to lose the main idea, the hunger for God, showing up with anticipation that God's actually going to show up, that you're going to have an encounter with God. I've proposed the, the, the chances of that happening are d- directly linked to where we show up or how we arrive to church. 
David refers to looking upon God in the sanctuary. Sanctuary would have been the the local gathering place for worship, much like the church would be today. He's showing up and he is expecting to look upon God while he's there. He uses these terms. What if we showed up with the same anticipation? God, I'm showing up here this morning at ABF to, to seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. I want to behold your power and your glory. Man, I think that would change drastically what our time here together looked like if we were hungry for God. That's my prayer for me. That's my prayer for the church. See in verse 3 that learn more about worship, that worship flows from a humble heart. Look at verse 3. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live in your name. I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. And my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. Notice here that that true worship, true worship requires humility. If you remember last week's message, that was David's conclusion after all of his, his offense before God. He's like, you know what? God isn't looking for more sacrifice. He's not looking for something on an altar. He's looking for someone that has a broken heart, contrite spirit, somebody that's come before him and, and says, man, you're, you're it. You're my everything. True worship and pride can't coexist. Look at David's conclusion. What does he say? He says, your, your love, he says, it's better, your steadfast love is better than life better than life. That's almost a prerequisite for true worship. You have to come to the conclusion that all the trappings and all the things of this world and all the things that we get caught up that you have to come to the conclusion that you're like, ah, those are lacking compared to his love. Compared to that, it's kind of a pointless thing. It's interesting to think of, of David coming to the, that, that conclusion. He's somebody that's definitely experienced the good life, right? Think about it as fame, power, prestige, wives, plural, children, a life of luxury in a palace. He's still, after all that, concluding that, concluding that apart from his steadfast love, those things are, aren't that great. They're not that big of a deal. It's in that humble place that we're actually able to worship. Look what he says, that his lips praise him. He's like, I can't even help but talk about it. I lift up my hands, a case for the Pentecostals. He's, he's, he, he's, he's there, he's, he's raising his hands in worship and concluding that, man, your love is better than all of this. I love, uh, I love the different comparisons that he does. If you actually slow down, if, if you don't take the time to really think about what he's saying there, you can miss some of this stuff. I was looking at that. And look at the comparison in verse five that he makes. He says, my soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. Let's think about that for a second. Anybody else here enjoy fat and rich food? Any, anybody else uh, uh, in that same camp? I would even say that one of the hardest things in life is controlling your intake of fat and rich food. Anybody else in that, that same camp? Like, I, it's, it's so hard, you know, c- counting calories, like watching what you eat, all this stuff. But here... This is coming from somebody probably munching on lizards, living in the wilderness, probably reminiscing a little bit, and he's comparing it. He says, listen, your love is as good as one of the steaks I had back in the palace. 
You know, like that, I can imagine his mind is, he's playing this out as good as these fat and rich foods. When I was in Chicago, there was a, a friend of mine that really enjoyed different restaurants and he enjoyed, which is the best kind of friend, enjoyed taking Adrian and I to sample different really good restaurants. And, uh, and he actually took us to a steak place. And he's like, Scott, he says, listen, I, I want you to, to introduce you to a, a new type of steak this evening. And he, was, he said, a steak that's been Oscared. Do you know what this means? Oscared? Where you actually here's here's a picture of it. Where they actually take baked crab meat and bake it on top. That's not even a, that doesn't even do it justice. They bake the crab meat on top of the steak and then a little bit of drizzle of goodness. And like you, you come out of it and I was like, oh my goodness, I can die right now. It was so ridiculously good. Here's the point. David saying the same thing. He's like, listen. If whoever's reading this, however many years later, you'll most likely have an idea of what, it, what I mean when I say fat and rich food. And what he's saying, he's like, listen, God is better. He's better than that. He's so good. Having an intimate relationship with, with him changes everything. It's interesting too, I found it, that after all of this, this is a man that's in the wilderness. He says, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. Joyful lips. How joyful would your lips be when you're stuck in the wilderness being chased by your own son who wants to murder you, who just pushed you out of the, out of the as a reigning king had just, just booted you out. And what does he say? He's saying, my, my joyful lips will praise you. Thinking about that as it relates to our, our message last week, do you remember what, what one of his requests was after he blew it with Bathsheba and with Uriah? One of his requests was, he says, don't take the joy of your salvation from me. Don't take away the joy. You can, you can have other things that go, come and go, but please don't take my joy. It's interesting here now, some years later, to see that God's answered that prayer in his life. That he still has the joy of his salvation Look, take a look as we continue. One other observation, that worship comes naturally as we reflect, as we reflect on God's goodness. Look what it, in verse six, it's kind of fun to picture this. It says, when I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night, for you have been my help and in the shadow of your wings, I will sing for joy. I love this, this picture of David just kind of crashed. I don't know if he's in a cave or, or where he's at. Maybe, I don't know if there's anybody else in here that sometimes lays awake at night. Anybody else have that, that problem or that issue? And just, you're, you're, it's hard to turn your brain off and, and kind of slow down and decompress from the day. But here's David at that place. And as he's laying there, it's talking about being in the watch of the night. What that would be is kind of a, in a military sense where they're taking turns as to who's staying awake. So he's laying awake in the, probably his turn to watch out for things for his son. And he's, he's there watching out. And what is, he, what is consuming his thoughts? What's consuming his thoughts? You can tell a lot about somebody by what's consuming their thoughts. What's he doing? He's, he's remembering. He's reminiscing and meditating on the ways that God has been a constant help in his life. It's kind of cool, huh? Kind of cool to think about that. The, the, this king that's being chased in the wilderness, as he's having time with just his thoughts, what he's choosing to fill his mind with is choosing to remember. 
And David, if you think about it, had a lot to remember. Think about all the ways that God had been faithful with him, all the way from back being chosen as king, as the defeating lions and bears, having victory over those. He's remembering, he's reminiscing. Oh yeah, remember that, that time I took on the, the, the giant, this, this massive man, and, and then became king, and the way that you protected me from Saul, and that spear missed my ear, and all these things. He's reminiscing about God's faithfulness, and now he's, he's saying, well, now that I'm in, in the middle of this, it's not going to be a shocker that you continue to provide for me. I've tried to do this all this past week. I was committed as, as I'm studying this. I'm like, all right, as I'm going to bed this week, as I'm laying there and trying to fall asleep, I'm going to just try to use that time to remember, to just recount different ways that God's been faithful in my life. I'll tell you what, it's been a fantastic week. It's been a really good week. It's funny how your perspective changes where worship is a little bit more natural when you've taken time to reflect on his goodness and his faithfulness in your life. We were at a men's retreat just uh, about a month ago with the rest of the, or a, a good portion of the guys here from the church. And one of the, the sessions John Spock was doing, he was talking about how important journaling has been in his life slow down, take time to reflect, to remember God's faithfulness. And I remember that, that day we had this exercise where we all went out in the woods and found a, a spot all by ourselves and just uh, penning out some of the different ways that God's been faithful and true in our, our lives. And another just sweet experience. I would propose based on this section of scripture and personal experience that worship comes naturally as we reflect on God's faithfulness. My question to us this morning is, when you're in those quiet times before falling asleep, when you're, when you're in those moments where you actually the, the, the sounds and the noise of the day have, have come to a stop, where does your mind go to? Where does it drift to? You can tell a lot about somebody by where their mind, what consumes their thoughts. Here, what I'd propose is one of the ways that we can actually reign and control the worship in our lives is moving our thoughts back to remembering his goodnesses and kindnesses to him. If you are here right now and laying in your bed, what would come to mind? What would come to your mind? What ways has he provided for you? What ways has he been there in your trials, when you're stuck in the cave, when you're, when you're munching lizards or whatever it is in your situation? What, what, what comes to mind for you? How has he been a provider? Worship comes naturally as we reflect Last point on worship here in the last section. Worship lays a foundation for surviving trials. Look what he says in verse 8. He says, My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him ex shall exalt, for the mouths of liars will be stopped. He's confident that his issues are going to be solved. He's thinking about that. Think about this for a moment. Having a high view of God solves so many of our problems. Having a high view of God, look, clinging to his sovereignty, clinging to his character, clinging to who he is, that you're all of a sudden, when your God is small... Your trials seem huge. When your God is huge, your trials seem small. Does that make sense? Worship lays a foundation for surviving trials. 
I had a phone call last Saturday evening. Actually, the, it started with a text. I'd gotten a text asking me to be praying for Gary Miller as he had passed out and was being taken to the hospital. Gary and Marianne have attended our church for many, many years, a faithful volunteer. I was like, oh man, that's, that's tough. But not even 10 minutes later, I get a call from Mary, Marianne saying, hey, you're not going to believe this, but, but, but Gary passed away this evening. It's like one of those moments, I don't know if you've had one of those speechless moments, getting that, that phone call. I literally didn't have anything I could say. It's like, I couldn't believe it. I work with Gary on a, on a weekly basis with facility stuff here at the church, and I was just, just stunned. A couple days later, after I'd kind of had a chance to settle in a little bit, I was talking to his son, Brent Miller, and just talking with him, and it was interesting in our conversation as kind of reflecting on it and seeing his heart that Brent immediately went back to God's sovereignty. He immediately went back to God's sovereignty. He's like, you know what? We're just clinging to God, just trusting that God knows what he's doing, that he's in control, that Gary's with him, present with him in this moment. I was thinking about that as it relates to this text here. That worship lays the foundation for surviving trials. You see, when you've appropriately worshiped, when you've appropriately clung to the character of God, when you're going back to him and his faithfulness over and over, what, what does he say in this, te- this section here? He's like, he's like, all these guys that are chasing me, they're going to be eaten by jackals. I love their com- their, how they talk back then. They're eaten by jackals, dying by the sword. I'm going to just keep worshiping you. Because why? Because he's clung to the character of God. Worship is the overflow of your revelation of who God is. Worship is the overflow of your revelation of who God is. The more you understand him, the more you've gotten to know him, the more you've seen his faithfulness in your life, that should propel our worship. I love this account of David and you get a little snapshot. It's like getting a peek into his mind. And, and I, I love, love the picture in the, in the last section there just before this where he says, he says, and in the shadow of your wings, I will sing for joy. I love this picture. And that's really the, the summary of, of his thinking. This picture, he's like, you know what? Not just under your wings. I'm content just being in the shadow of your wings. Your wings are, are so huge. I'm content with just being somewhere underneath the shadow of them. He had come to that conclusion through these just miserable times, these experiences. He didn't just have a Sunday morning experience of worship, he realized that worship was a lifestyle. It wasn't just in the high points, it's also in the low points when you're clinging but nothing but him. That's my prayer for us as a church, that we would be worshipers, not just people that sing well, although that would be nice, but people that, that legit worship God. That's my desire for me, that's my desire for us collectively. Let's pray towards that end. God, I thank you for this picture into the heart of a king that we've seen this week in the weeks that have come before this, that we've seen how you've handled things. Yes, you, we, we, we saw that, that David blew it, but by coming humbly before you, you, you received him back, you restored him, restored his joy, restored his ability to worship. Thank you, God, for being that God that keeps bringing us back. I thank you for this glimpse into his heart for worship. The fact that he loved you, that he, he, he recognized at his lowest point that he didn't run from you, he chased after you. God, I pray for that for us as a church. 
there'd be less shaking fists at you and a little bit more of, of pursuing it, you, God, that we'd be hungry for you. We know that that hunger only stems from you. It has to start at a point of recognizing that you're our everything. Pray for that for each of us. In Jesus Christ's name, amen. fantastic line. I touch the sky when my knees hit the ground. Getting back to the heart of worship here this morning. Let me give just two reminders as we're leaving this morning. One one thing we do is once a month is in an attempt to support some of the folks in our community that are struggling financially. We have a second deacon's offering. So if you'd like to participate in that as you're going, you're welcome to. And then VBS this week, we'd be so grateful if you would join us in just praying. There's so many kids that are going to be on this campus that don't know Jesus Christ. And we would pray as boldly as to ask that people would come, kids would come into a saving relationship with him this week at Camp Everest. Last thing. If you are a male and you have muscles that you're willing to use for the Lord here this morning, we're hoping to move some chairs out of here so they can have this room cleared. So stick around. Ladies, go enjoy a coffee. God bless.